From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Inside McDonald's Sustainability Journey, a report from this week's Clean Tech Open Global Forum, how companies can get involved with urban planning, and an air conditioner powered by outer space. It's cold comfort this week on 350. It's February 1st, 2019. Where did January go? Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from the Poly Vortex of Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Heather, it's uh, 10 degrees there, something like that? It is 10 degrees now. It was zero degrees this morning. And guys, not with the wind chill, <laughs> period. End of st full stop. <laughs> uh, so um, I broke out the snowmobile jacket yeah. this morning. So what's that like? for those of us who haven't had the pleasure. To be honest, I, I don't mind the cold so much. What has been difficult is the bouncing, bouncing temperature syndrome that we've been dealing with here. It's been literally seesawing from 50 degrees down to zero degrees, up to 40 degrees down to 10 degrees. It's just been just wild. And I think the poor animals are, are uh, confused as heck. And um, it's dangerous because all of a sudden you'll, you'll get a whole mess of rain and then boom, it freezes and you get black ice. So that's, um, it's more, I worry more about the people that, that are going to slip and fall and, and, and hurt themselves that, you know, you, it's, it's always easy to put a lot more clothing on. Uh, and they've actually had a, you know, speaking of which, unfortunately, they've had buses in New York going around and picking up uh, people that, that are homeless and driving them around essentially to keep them warm. So kind of a novel approach, but I thank goodness that, that some, some of those folks have relief. Whatever it takes. Yeah, I remember my days in D.C. when, when because D.C., whenever there's this, this kind of weather, it snows to the north and rains to the south, and in the middle, in D.C. itself, it's this kind of frozen rain. It's not exactly sleet. It's not exactly hail. It's frozen rain. And what happens is, is that it would... It would, it would sort of rain and slush, and then it would freeze at night, and then it might snow on top of that. And that is, for, for us pedestrians, and not to mention cars, bikes, and everybody else, that's dangerous stuff. Sure is. Sure is. Let's heat things up uh, now and get away from the cold into the weekend review. So one of the stories we picked this week is about Honda, and uh, specifically, uh, it's uh, partnerships with startups and sort of the open innovation mode it's taken at its at least at its R&D facility in Silicon Valley. Katie Fehrenbacher, our transportation analyst, did this piece. And it really was telling to me, Heather, about uh, how much, not just automotive industry, but innovation itself has changed in terms of, of companies wanting to or needing to be open source, uh, partner with little guys, uh, it's no longer not invented here. Right. And you have seen some larger companies. I'll, I'll, I'll pop over to the cloud realm for a moment. Amazon and Microsoft have both, quote, open sourced data 
for um, the use of other companies and encouraging startups to use sustainability data, climate data, data on biodiversity and so forth to to build new companies. And what Honda is doing, I, I love it because basically they've created this garage where companies can come in and bang bang away on the vehicles and and um, use robotics and, and test their own ideas in in some of Honda's vehicles, which, um, you know, things like high definition mapping, augmented reality, voice control. So controlling the car via voice instead of hands or, or what other, what other, you know, touch, et cetera. Um, and I love the fact that, um, instead of basically giving these companies a lot of money to go do it on their own, they're saying, come on in, bang around, show, show, and PS, show us what you're doing. So we can think about the things that we need to do to support this in the future and, and so forth. I, it's a, it's a great approach. Yeah. And I think it's one that we're going to be seeing more and more of as, as companies, uh, recognize that, you know, it's, it's, partner up or, or move on, because this is uh, the world of open innovation. It's just not exactly new, uh, but it, it's, it's tended to be in the tech world and a few other places. And now, well, automotive basically is the tech world now, so it, it's, it's natural um, that, it, that it moved there. But, but car companies have not, until fairly recently, been very open to this sort of thing. And so I, I love uh, what's going on here, and I encourage you to read this story about the Honda Accelerator. That's X C E L E R A T O R, um, and uh, that is that's the future. It's actually the present. Another story from the past week is from a longtime friend of ours, Jan Dell, who's a engineer working these days on on plastics issues. And this piece is about the response of shareholders. Uh, in asking retailers to be more transparent about their policies um, on plastic bags. Yeah. So there's a couple of states, and I, I know that, um, you know, I'm, I don't know the tally, uh, but, but where you have, you're not allowed to use say Hawaii is an example, right? So you don't get a plastic bag when you go to a retail outlet, a store, grocery store, a, a consumer, you know, product store, a clothing store, and so forth. And what this uh, essay argues is that, you know what, the retailers aren't doing enough, generally speaking. The laws, the state laws and local ordinances are spreading, but not quite doing it yet. The take-back programs, you know, where, okay, bring your plastic bags back to the dry cleaner or back to the, the grocery store and so forth, they're not really working. So what this article is public, uh, pushing for is, hey, investors ask for these companies to disclose, you know, what they're doing on plastic bags. So um, Kroger or Walmart, you know, what's your policy? How many have you committed? Um, be more transparent. So she's uh, tapping into the, the uh, sort of activism movement right now that we were seeing among many investors and saying, you know, guys, ask this question. This is another thing you should be asking about. So um, it, it's quite a it, you know, we all know it's an issue. I, 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 with the wind howling last night here, here in, in Midland Park, New Jersey, there were plastic bags, you know, blowing across my front lawn. I thought, oh, you know, <laughs> they're there. And, and so it's not just the ocean. They're, they're, they're blowing around everywhere. And so I think uh, I love the idea. I love the idea. Well, you said, uh, you know, Walmart, Kroger, how many bags are you using? And, and um, there is a study that, that she references and there's this great table that goes through uh, uh, more than 80 or 90, actually, uh, retailers. At Walmart, it turns out, in a typical year, 
serves up 18 billion, 18.74 billion plastic bags uh, in the U.S. alone. But what this table that, that, that she links to shows is that uh, what is the country policy in the U.S.? Uh, most uh, don't have any. Uh, Walmart doesn't have one, obviously. Uh, Kroger, which uh, is number two and serves up only six billion plastic bags, has a plan to phase out, uh, phase them out by 2025. But it, it also shows, you know, that Amazon, Costco, uh, a couple of others, um, BJ's Wholesale Warehouse, IKEA, uh, Adidas, Disney, and some others have uh, policies around no plastic shopping bags. And so, and even the ones at the bottom of the list, Petco is number 86, uh, still serves up 210 million pl plastic bags a year. So this is not nothing. And, and I think the, the, the situation now is with so many issues uh, that weren't issues before, is what's the risk these companies have uh, in terms of not that the plastic, well, the, the risks of being asked to either stop using plastic bags or, or clean up or maybe some legal or regulatory fix. Um, and so shareholders want to know this. This is a, a, an issue of, of potential risk or liability. And that's where this, this whole uh, initiative that Jan Dell is a part of um, is coming from. You know, and it's funny, it's, I think this is going to start a lot with, of course, consumers, right? I, I bring religiously my, my bags to the grocery store and I've started now bringing them into other retailers. So um, my favorite pharmacy, I bring them in and I've had like a complete look of bemusement. The, the cashiers are like, what? I'm like, cause I'm, I'm like, here, no, no, don't, don't put in the plastic, put in this. And they're, but they all smile. They're like, oh, that's a great idea. And I'm thinking, you know, that also is, is something important that we need to think about. It's, it's going to be consumer pressure, I think, that might help. Yeah, well, I live in the California Bay Area bubble where yeah. that, it, it, yeah. even if you, I mean, certainly nobody looks at you cross-eyed and you bring in your own bag. In fact, it, and, and I have to say, uh, it, 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 and again, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a green guy in a, in a green place, uh, but I, those rare times when I, you know, do a last minute uh, thing to the store, I'm walking down the street, decide to go into a store to grab lettuce or whatever, and I didn't bring a bag with me, and all of a sudden I have a, a, a bag, a paper bag or whatever, and it's like, I feel so bizarre. And, you know, it's not about <laughs> guilt so much, although I do hope that nobody, <laughs> don't run, run into anyone I know, but it wouldn't be, the, <laughs> wouldn't be the worst thing. But it is, it's become this thing that, you know, I mean, for a while it was like, I don't want to have to carry my own bags around. I mean, you know, they have bags in the store. Why should I schlep my, you know, tote bags around? And now it's to the point where, yeah, if I don't have them and, you know, those rare instances, it's like, Oh wow, this just doesn't feel right. So I don't know, you know, how that translates outside of of the Bay Area. Uh, probably not so well as most not things. Not very much. Yeah, yeah not but, so much. But uh, it, it does become habit forming, and it does become just you know a, a part of of who you are. And, and maybe if you're at all like me, and God help you if you are, it may become something where you just don't even feel right anymore doing it the old way. But speaking of the old way, let's move over to one other story, which is uh, from Sarah Murphy, contributor, green regular contributor of ours, um, about an air conditioner powered by outer space and help from the sun. 
So, Heather, can you shed some light on what's going on here? Speaking of shedding, yes, I can. So the idea is, um, yeah, so there's a group of Stanford University electrical engineers who are testing the idea of combining a device that would both collect power, so like a solar, you know, maybe harvest solar energy, use the sun, but also simultaneously help shed heat from a building or from the rooftop or so forth. So it uses, it combines the principles of harvesting energy, but also of shedding heat through radiative cooling. And this is the idea, right? So I, I had to, to do a little Wikipedia hunting um, when I was reading this story, but it, it, it intrigued me because the idea is, I mean, sim simply, if you think about it, it's what I did this morning. I bundled up, right? I covered every bit of my skin so that I would not get cold. Um, clearly, it, it's freezing outside and below freezing, but but part of the reason I covered up was to trap the heat because all of our bodies tra uh, shed heat. And so the idea is to use that principle um, and look at ways that you can accelerate that and help buildings shed heat. Um, and so that's the idea that behind this, um, technically speaking, this is a really small prototype right now, um, but the idea is potentially they could, could think of ways to combine energy collection and energy generating devices like a solar panel with this sort of technology to help um, cool the building at the same time. And so they're testing different materials. And um, the, I think the other reason that I, I really felt it was important to get this story out there was because, I mean, we're in this, this ironic cycle, right? As the climate warms and as the earth warms, people are wanting to stay cool. And so air conditioning technologies of all sorts are in going to be in high demand around the world in both emerging and established economies. And we better figure out a way to make it more, um, uh, less, less uh, harmful because as we know, the um, hydrochlorofluorocarbons, HFCs, right? Are in this technology are one of the the most um, dangerous ozone-destroying chemical um, refrigerators out there right now. So anyway, it's just one of those vicious cycles, if you will. And it's not just ozone. These are also potent uh, greenhouse gases, uh, far more mm -hmm. so than mm -hmm. carbon dioxide. The mm -hmm. HFCs uh, ha have uh, between 1,000 and 9,000 times greater capacity to cause global warming or, uh, than carbon dioxide. And in fact, uh, in, in the book uh, Drawdown, that project Drawdown organized by Paul Hawk, and um, this book that came out, I guess, a couple of years ago now, it, when it ranked 100 different solutions or uh, 80 solutions and 20 sort of coming attractions, I believe was the formula, uh, around their potential to uh, not just uh, stop emitting, but actually to draw down carbon is, is refrigerant management ranked as the number one solution among all of those options. We're talking about solar and wind and carbon sequestration of all types, and uh, but refrigerant management. And so, uh, yes, as um, more and more people both join the middle class and live in increasingly warmer climes, uh, the amount of air conditioning in the world is expected to grow considerably. And we're going to need solutions like this uh, like this uh, space-powered uh, air conditioning system to, uh, to figure out you know, how to provide humans what we need for comfort, 
and in some cases for survival, while making sure that the comfort and survival of the planet uh, remains on track. Yeah, to bring this home, this thing powers itself and it cools itself. So that's kind of a cool proposition. Literally. Last week, Emerald Publishing published The Battle to Do Good, Inside McDonald's Sustainability Journey by GreenBiz Editor-at-Large Bob Langert. Bob, of course, ran McDonald's sustainability initiatives from the late 1980s until he retired a few years ago. The book tells the story of the companies and Bob's personal journey taking on a wide range of topics and critics of the hamburger giant. Bob joins me now. Hey, Bob. Hey, Joel. How you been? Doing good. Why did you finally write a book? What led you to do that? Well, when I was about to retire back in early uh, 2015, I, I just thought the journey I was on was worth sharing. I go, man, this has been an amazing 30 years for me to do what I was doing at McDonald's, to be uh, in the middle of so many big issues at the company, you know, whether it's uh, waste is where I began, whether it was animal treatment, nutrition, obesity, deforestation, being inside one of the, the biggest brands and well-known companies of, of the world. It's like, hey, I was an eyewitness to everything. I felt it was worth uh, sharing. And at one level, I wanted to write it for the average person. I wrote it in a way that hopefully it's kind of an easy read. It's not technical. It's not academic. But probably the sweet spot of what I wanted to do is kind of share the learnings. I felt that my journey was a, was a fairly hard one. You know, the company made mistakes. You know, we succeeded and failed. It was turbulent. And so many companies are wrestling with this stuff today. I, I thought by sharing it, maybe I can make at least one other person and one other company do it better, quicker, and be a, a leader you know, much sooner to make transformative change happen. What did you learn in writing the book? What did, Any revelations about yourself or the company or the journey? Well, I would say in terms of what I learned about the sustainability journey, especially when I spent four years writing this. So yeah, I, I'm not one to be so reflective. It's like raising a family. When you're, when you're doing it, you don't know what it's all about. And then when you're kind of done, and I'm a grandparent now, you look back and go, wow, how did I do it? I, I think the, uh, the journey was just so uh, full of uh, people that I just admired. It's probably the one thing that stuck out for me is one, that no matter what I worked on or whatever McDonald's did, we were always doing something new something different. It was a change, whether it's new animal welfare standards for the suppliers, you know, changing the laying hen sizes for hens, you know, working with Greenpeace in the Amazon. I never thought from the south side of Chicago I'd be doing stuff like that. So what I learned is that all this change, although it's very tough at the beginning, it's amazing when you take a look at it five, 10 years later, it becomes the norm. And so I don't think a lot of people realize that, that when they're struggling for this battle <laughs> to do good, like laying hens, we, when we made the laying hens, you know, spaces for the hens, you know, twice as big back in 2001, the resistance from the egg suppliers was tremendous. I mean, the anger was there, it was palpable. Believe it or not, all 27 suppliers that McDonald's had in the U.S. said, we don't want to do business with any anymore. So isn't that the kind of the, the epitome of somebody being really mad at you, you know, with these new laying hen cage standards? Well, five or seven years later, that standard was the norm for everybody in the business. And I found it to be the case with so many things. 
And then the other thing I realized is how important the people are. And that's why I ended up interviewing like 51 people for this book. As I got into writing the book, I realized that, well, I want to talk about this person more. I want to talk about Francesca more, Jason Clay, or I want to tell the story about the actual people that did it. And believe me, it's not just me. To me, I was just a a little bit of an accessory along the way because, uh, as you probably know, I think the job of a sustainability leader is to influence others. So how to be influential and how to get other people in your company kind of excited on board. These are the things that really jumped out at me as I was kind of writing the book. Yeah, I think you're underplaying your role there a little bit, calling yourself an accessory. You were sort of the ringleader, even though you, you did enlist a lot of people. You you were uh, sort of running that show. I'm curious about the title, why you chose The Battle to Do Good. It seems, uh, you know, for someone is, who I know is, is as optimistic as you, that seems sort of a in a cynical sort of way, uh, off-putting title. But why did you go that way? <laughs> Well, you know, I thought about it that way in many ways. I thought every day I was coming into work, it was a battle to do good. And by the way, I don't take it as a negative as you take it, but I can see how you take it that way. It's sort of like I'm a tennis player. So when I go out to play tennis, I go out and go, you know what? I want to win this match. I want to you know, beat the other person. I do everything I can for the battle on the tennis court. And I enjoy that whole experience of playing tennis. I... As you probably know, Joel, I loved what I did at McDonald's I, every day. So, so the battle was not like unenjoyable, but let's face it, these issues are tough. So if you don't enter it with the idea that it's a, a huge challenge, you're not accepting reality. Now, your reaction to that challenge should be, let's conquer it. Let's be optimistic. We can win. We'll figure it out. All those positive things that you allude to. So that's why I called it a, a battle, because uh, it's not easy. Yeah, you prove that, and there's some great stories in there, and it is a, a good read for pretty much anybody, but particularly for people in sustainability, or whether you're on the corporate side or the activist side or academic side. I think getting the reality check, uh, the insider's look, uh, we haven't seen that very often, particularly the candid way that you describe that. We haven't seen many people who have been battle-tested, I guess, in your, in your lingo, telling all. So I really appreciate the stories that you told and, and the fact that you were willing to put this out to the world. Does it feel good so far? Yeah, I feel good about it. I couldn't have poured more into this book than what I did. <laughs> so I laid it all out there and uh, everything I learned and observed, not only for myself, but all the others I worked with. And I, I just... Uh, it was a really good feeling to get it done. Well, it shows. Bob Langer is the former vice president of sustainability at McDonald's and now a green biz editor at large, among other things, and uh, the author of The Battle to Do Good Inside McDonald's Sustainability Journey. Bob, I look forward to doing a, a one-hour fireside chat with you at the Green Biz Conference in Phoenix. We can get much more into the real stories behind this and the stories behind the stories. Always good to see you. So we'll see you in Phoenix. Thanks so much, Bob. See you there. Christoph Spieler is a Vice President and Director of Planning at construction engineering firm Hewitt Zolars and a Senior Lecturer at Rice University. From 2010 to 2018, he was a member of the Board of Directors of Houston's Metropolitan Transit Authority of Harris County. And he's just published a new book called Trains, Buses, People, An Opinionated Atlas of U.S. Transit. 
The book is billed as a fun and accessible guide to how cities can build successful transit systems. It includes highly visual profiles of the 47 metropolitan areas in the United States that have rail transit or bus rapid transit systems. The best and worst systems are ranked and Spieler offers an analysis of how geography, politics, and history complicate transit planning. We recently ran an excerpt of the book on Greasebiz Reads. And in addition, Greenbiz Associate Editor Holly Seekin spoke with Christoph about how the book came together. Holly, thanks for dropping by into this uh, episode of Greenbiz 350. Thanks for having me, Heather. So when you spoke with Christoph, what did you learn from the conversation? Was there anything that surprised you? And, you know, given that this is a, an urban planner, you know, how does the business world get involved? We had a really great conversation. It was super interesting to learn from his perspective about how public transportation networks and cities work. He, uh, he talked to me a lot about how his own background working for Houston's uh, Rapid Transit had actually started when he <laughs> had started a blog about the transportation in the city. And he would show up to um, meetings transportation meetings and the planners would look at him and go oh hey that's the guy that's been writing the blog about us and so he ended up getting involved that way it was a kind of interesting public public input kind of thing he talked a lot about how public transportation actually is a lot not only about transportation but it's also incredibly impacted by um, housing decisions as well as business decisions. One of the most important factors that public transportation needs to consider, even if it might not, is that it needs to actually look at where the economic centers of an urban place are and be able to get people in and out of those. And especially that means places with not a lot of parking or extensive parking since people still need to get around. So something that we talked about was what businesses can do for for uh, people to get them using public transportation, as well as to impact the decisions that urban planners um, make around transportation, which is as a business community, go to meetings, provide input, as well as as business owners, offer incentives to their employees to use public transportation, like commuter benefits, as well as let employees, you know, show up a little bit late to work if their bus was late um, and that kind of thing. So with that, here's Christoph with a couple of his thoughts about how public transportation and businesses can work together. The most important aspect of successful transit systems is that they serve employment centers. The employment end of that trip is absolutely critical. And so one of the things there is if employers choose to locate in places that are easily accessible by high-quality transit, it will make a dramatic difference in the travel habits of their employees. Like I'm sitting here in the middle of downtown Houston right now in what everybody would think of as a car-oriented city. Mm -hmm. In downtown Houston, 30% of employees take transit to work. Because the transit is there that connects urban neighborhoods as well as suburban park and ride lots into downtown. And because employers who locate here are giving their employees those options, um, 
if I'm looking further out, I'm seeing other clusters of high-rises which aren't located as well relative to the transit system where that commute share is 5% instead of 30%. And that's a huge impact on the environment. That's a huge carbon mm -hmm. footprint impact where the number one decision all of those employers made was where do we put those jobs? And then those employers are also making decisions about are they offering their employees free parking or not, which we know makes a huge difference mm -hmm. in how many people ride transit. Are we, are we giving them free transit fares? Um, and even like the day, day stuff of sort of what is the culture at work? Like one of the things I have found in some places is that if somebody shows up late to work and, and the boss asks, why are you late? And they say, my bus was delayed. The, the boss's answer is, why are you taking the bus? Whereas if they show up late to work and the boss asks and they say, well, um, there was a traffic jam on 290, then the boss says, oh, I know that traffic's so horrible. I totally understand. Mm -hmm. Like, so obviously that matters a lot. Um, but then companies in the specific, I mean, you mentioned developers. Um, mm -hmm. Are developers building things in places that have access to good transit? And are they building them in such a way that that transit is easy to use? It's really important to realize how much of transit is about land use. Mm -hmm. That one of the best things you can do to make transit more useful is put more stuff next to transit that already exists. Um, and that's, that's office space, but it's very importantly places for people to live. It's places to shop. It's all of those services. Absolutely. Are there grocery stores on transit? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and I think some of the best improvements in transit in the United States have been driven as much by private sector developers doing infill development as they have by transit agencies developing new transit. So that's, that's definitely a role where the private, that's definitely a case where the private sector plays a role. And obviously a lot of companies that are customer facing, you know, if you're running a grocery store chain, are you locating? Are you locating? Are you locating stores in places that are on the transit network? Um, and I think a lot of lot of retailers, for example, tend to think through their location decisions in a very car-based way. But you've seen some, like I think, like some of the urban format Target stores, for example. You've seen some retailers realize that actually, you know, putting stores in places that are at the center of transit networks can actually lead to a lot of customers. So I think one of the big mistakes we tend to make when we talk about transit is we act as if the decisions that transit agencies make are at the heart of how good transit is. And obviously those things are critical, but there's a lot of decisions made elsewhere that are also having huge impact. And one, one of the big reasons why I wanted to write it, and then that sort of gave me the motivation to do it, is one of the things I got really frustrated with about the transit discussion in the United States is that I felt like we were having a lot of the wrong discussions. Like I saw a whole lot of arguments about bus versus rail. I saw a whole lot of discussion about which city is building how many miles of rail. I didn't see very much discussion about where are we putting transit, about around which corridors are the places where transit will work best, how will a network connect best. I, the most important decision a city makes when it builds transit isn't, is it going to be bus or rail? And it isn't, is it going to be going down this street or this other street two blocks away? It's which parts of the city are we focusing on? It's which corridors are we investing in? And I feel like those discussions tend to be far too fast and far too superficial. 
when those are actually by far the most important decisions. And I also got really frustrated that I felt like a lot of transit advocates and a lot of the discussion in the transit industry as a whole basically measured success by getting something built. That the, the usual definition of a successful transit city was a city that built a lot of new transit and that there was a general tendency to celebrate every project as a success. And I was looking around the country and riding transit and realizing that We've built some transit that's really amazing, that's really making cities better, that's really making people's lives better. But we've also built some transit that isn't very useful at all, and that different cities have made very different decisions. And I felt it was really important to actually have honest discussions about that, to be willing to say this has worked and this hasn't, and to really point out how different approaches have worked, how different philosophies of building systems have worked. This week in Los Angeles, the Cleantech Open held their global forum showcasing entrepreneurs in clean technology. And our own Shauna Rappaport, Vice President and Executive Director of Verge, was there. Uh, Shauna, what was going on? Yeah, it was a fantastic couple of days. They had uh, over 70 teams, uh, startup teams working in technologies across a bunch of different markets, energy, mobility, transportation, clean fuels, ag, a lot of circular economy solutions. Um, and really the couple of days, it was a mix of startup pitches. They were celebrating their cohort of finalists this year. They did a People's Choice Awards um, and certainly a whole technology sort of demonstration and showcase helping to to connect investors and partners uh, to these startup teams. Wow, so these teams are 70 teams. Tell us, these are teams of two or five people. What were they doing? How long had this process taken place? Yeah, well, it's the global forum, and so folks were truly there from all over the world. Um, Cleantech Open every year has a cohort of finalists, but there were CTO alumni that were there. A lot of these companies are very early, early stage, still developing prototypes, some just going to market, still um, certainly raising funding. And really the whole week and this whole the whole Cleantech Open ecosystem and, and, and their work with Lacey is about um, supporting those entrepreneurs and bringing their solutions to market. Lacey is the LA Clean Tech Incubator. Um, and you spoke there too. Uh, what, what would you what'd you talk about? I did. I had an opportunity to be a part of their keynote program. They invited me to shed a little window of insight into our world here at Green Biz. I, I think I called my talk the business of climate and clean tech. So um, yeah, I talked a little bit about Verge and sort of the trends in, that we're tracking here at Green Biz about kind of where the world of sustainable business is going and the huge economic as well as environmental and social benefits of uh, the transition to a low carbon economy. And word on the street was that you were a smash hit. No surprise there. You also came back with a couple of, of clips you want to play. Uh, tell us about them. I did. Yes, um, we the folks were moving about all throughout the in incredible Lacey uh, Lacrette's uh, Innovation Campus, which you'll hear about in just a minute. Um, one moment I pulled Eric Steeb aside, who's been involved in Clean Tech Open and Lacey, and is now running the uh, Incubate Energy Network out of Epri, um, and also. So my new friend Devorit Mausner, who is the executive director of Many Labs and doing really interesting work advancing the community and markets around carbon tech. So here's what they had to say. 
Eric, thank you for uh, letting me pull you aside. We're here at the Cleantech Open Global Forum at the Lacey headquarters here in Los Angeles. And I want to start by actually asking you to paint a little bit of a picture about this extraordinary and rather unique facility in which we find ourselves right now. Thanks, Shauna. It's an amazing facility. Uh, it, this really came out of uh, this area of Los Angeles used to be a really strong manufacturing powerhouse back in the back in the day before everything moved overseas. And uh, the local mayor's office here, uh, Mayor Villaraigosa, was looking for a strategy for how we bring that back and how does he incorporate really uh, sustainable technologies, energy, improve our air quality and those sorts of things. That evolved into a strategy for an incubator. The Department of Water and Power purchased the building. Uh, we added a lot more money to turn it into the, the Class A building that it is today. It's 60,000 square feet that houses early stage uh, technology companies focused on clean energy and also houses a lot of nonprofits that kind of also work in the sector that can help those companies bring their businesses to market. The half of the facility is dedicated to developing the companies, developing the entrepreneurs, the leadership within those companies, and half of the facility is really focused on the technology. So we have 9,000 square feet of advanced prototyping centers. We house the LADWP's validation engineers on site that these companies can have access to. And then there's a large showcase and customer engagement area for the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power to engage the local community on how they might be more sustainable in their homes and their businesses and, and so on. Yeah, it's great. I found myself walking in the building this morning and getting pulled into a maze of all of the demonstrations. And it's it's a really extraordinary, extraordinary facility. We're glad to, glad to be here. So talk a little bit, Eric, about the evolution of your work. You've held leadership positions at Lacey and within CTO, and now you're running the Incubate, uh, Incubate Energy Network out of EPRI, which has been one of our partners of, of Verge Accelerate for years. Talk a little bit about what you're focused on and what you're feeling most energized about in the coming year with Incubate Energy? So Incubate Energy was originally conceived to, to bring these incubators and accelerators together to share best practices because we're all nonprofits. We're all struggling with, you know, how we keep the lights on. Uh, and it's done a great job over the last three years. Um, but the, the, the focus is shifting a little bit more now that now that we've got kind of the foundations under us and we really understand how to be successful in running incubators and accelerators, we're now focused on how do we better connect the startups that are coming through our ecosystem with the utilities and the large customers of those utilities to really accelerate their technologies into market. And so how are you actually facilitating that? So we started out by uh, just kind of uh, canvassing the, the ecosystem and asking who are those great companies that would really be relevant to the utilities. That's happened over the last couple of years. And I just joined about eight weeks ago now uh, and am focused on building out a challenge and demonstration program where we start with the key needs of the utilities and where they're focusing their resources. Uh, where EPRI is focusing its resources and then reaching back into the community, finding the best of those entrepreneurs that address those specific mm -hmm. needs because we know there's customer demand behind it. We know there's dollars uh, reserved behind those things and then facilitate the connections to the utilities deploying those solutions. And what are you seeing in terms of sort of the, what feels like an inflection point in terms of the receptivity of certainly large corporates that we're seeing and utilities as well, um, being open to kind of partnering more creatively, engaging with startups in pilot projects. What, to what do you attribute that? I think part of it is that the business model and the landscape in our uh, energy infrastructure, in our utilities businesses is changing so fast these utilities and large corporates are, are really understanding that uh, innovation is key, innovation is critical. Uh, and they know that uh, startups kind of have that ingrained in their DNA and they, they like to engage in activities that get their, the, the utilities or the large multinationals 
innovators and research centers and things like that engaged with these entrepreneurs. So they really start getting a feel for how do they go about innovating rapidly? How do they go about testing new te- technologies in market quickly and kind of learning as they go? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's really grown over the last two or three years, this interest in engagement between large multinationals, whether they're utilities or, or otherwise, and the startup community. If you could offer one sort of piece of advice, words of advisement to our audience, which is made up primarily of you know businesses, but folks coming from cities and government as well, when as they're thinking about how do I work with entrepreneurs or what's the value in it for me, what would you what would you offer them as a as a parting word? Well, we have a you know kind of funny phrase, death by pilot or death by demonstration. It's you know it's very easy to kill these startups if you start engaging them and want to deploy it and take forever to make. Decisions decisions and deploy those things. So it probably comes down to perfect is the enemy of, you know, of good. Uh, test these things in market quickly, see where the issues are, focused on, you know, iterating and integrating and figure out how we can deploy these as quickly as possible. That's perfect. Well, Eric, congrats on your new role uh, with Incubate Energy. I'm really excited to see where you take the project and equally excited about working together to continue advancing these markets and supporting all these extraordinary entrepreneurs that we're seeing here this week. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. I'm super excited about it. Thanks for having me. I'm here still at the Cleantech Open Global Forum and just ran into my new friend, Devorit Mausner, who is the director of Many Labs, uh, which is a community for carbon tech entrepreneurs. She's also working closely with our partners at formerly the Center for Carbon Removal, now Carbon 180. Devorit, thanks so much for letting me pull you aside to take some time. I'm so happy we ran into each other. So I first and foremost want to ask you, help define what, what is carbon tech? So carbon tech is the conversion of carbon wastes into valuable products and services. There are a variety of carbon waste streams. So one obvious one is sequestered carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And that's one that we want to target most because, of course, that will contribute to the reversal of climate change. On the other hand, waste carbon streams can also be considered manure or biomass or even garbage. And then the conversion to products and services means we believe that instead of focusing on carbon as waste, we can see it as value. And by creating valuable products and services, we can drive a venture-backed market in order to tap into the estimated $1 trillion U.S. total available market that we feel can penetrate current business practices in order to reverse climate change. That's so great. You are clearly deep in the carbon tech space and have been working really closely with, you know, many of the entrepreneurs that we're seeing here at Clean Tech Open this week who are who are already working in the space or thinking about working into it. What is it about sort of carbon removal that you see as so essential as it relates to as as you said yourself, reversing global warming? So carbon removal is absolutely critical for reversing global warming because right now we already have so many emissions in the atmosphere that even if companies begin to reduce their continued emissions, we already have surpassed the point of no return, so to speak. And so it's not just that we need to limit new emissions. We absolutely need to take current emissions out of the atmosphere. So the ability to do that has to be driven by commercial markets because obviously so far we've failed at providing an incentive for people to be removing carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. My belief is that we can use capitalism as a force for good. We can convince people that there is money to be made in removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And by doing so, we can actually drive markets to have a double bottom line to not only create a valuable product or service, but also to reverse climate change. So not only is it key for 
our environment, our planet, our societies, but it's also very valuable to the consumer marketplace. And so I think the fusion of those two is very exciting. Well, this is a space that we certainly at GreenBiz are working to, are embracing and working to help define and accelerate. You know, our core audience is a lot of the big companies, also cities and governments that are are looking at how to be a part of accelerating the clean economy. Maybe you can paint a picture a couple of the industries, let's say, where you're seeing the most traction in the carbon removal and carbon tech space to help really elevate what, what are those opportunities that we're seeing. It is such an exciting time for carbon removal because the technology is now available and what we have to do is take it to scale. So a perfect example is fuels. We can take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, we can turn that into fuel. And ideally, we can close that loop by then also attaching to emission-producing exhaust pipes technology that can recapture those emissions and then again turn it back into fuel. So fuels will be the largest market that we believe. In the market report that we did in total, including fuels and other products, we see $6 trillion annually in the global market. Another major contributor to that will be cement, concrete, and other sort of limestone aggregates. Products that currently are among some of the largest producers of CO2 emissions, but we can not only remove CO2 from the atmosphere and turn that into concrete, but actually that concrete will continue to sequester carbon dioxide, which is a really exciting opportunity within the built environment. And then another one is plastics. Plastics right now are produced from petroleum coming straight from the earth. However, we can use uh, garbage that already exists. We can use carbon dioxide that's already in our atmosphere. We can use biomass. Um, and other sources of carbon waste and turn that into plastics that are better for the environment. So we're hoping for carbon neutral and then in many cases carbon negative, taking products that we know will not contribute to additional carbon waste, but will be utilizing sequestered carbon dioxide and other carbon waste streams to move towards a negative carbon economy. And by moving towards negative carbon, we'll be able to reverse climate change. Well, Devore, thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise and for all of the work that you're doing to support the many and increasingly growing uh, world of entrepreneurs in this space. I'm so glad we had a chance to connect and I'm really looking forward to working with you and bringing you into uh, the Verge Fold this coming year. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. I'm excited. It's all about carbon tech this year. So stay tuned. <laughs> So before we let you go, a programming note. Next Tuesday, February 5th, we will be launching our 2019 edition of The State of Green Business. It's our annual report, the 12th annual edition. And we'll be holding a webcast, a webinar for some of you, uh, with uh, Richard Madison and Libby Burnick from TrueCost, a part of S&P Global, who are our partners on the report. Each year, the report looks at 10 key trends and uh, over 30 metrics assessing how and how much companies are moving the needle on a whole range of environmental challenges. So to learn more and to register, go to greenbiz.com or click over to the page from this week's podcast. We'll look forward to seeing you Tuesday, February 5th. That's 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. And uh, as, uh, let me do the, do the math. I think that's uh, 6 p.m. in the GMT. And uh, with that, that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization's stories, events we mentioned in this episode. While you're over there, check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Greenbiz events. You can hit us up by email 
350 at greenbiz.com is the address. We always love to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe to one or more of our five, count them, five weekly e-newsletters. Heather publishes the Energy Weekly every Thursday and my Green Buzz newsletter. It's fresh every Monday morning. And check out the other three as well. Heather and I will be back next week. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening and stay warm out there.